He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt his, the horn of his anointed. As I thought about the people of DRC and I thought of them as extremely poor and, uh, and the smoke and the dust and the ash heap, Recognizing that God is able to completely reverse their situation or ours at any time. It is his, under his control. And he raises even those poor people to be princes with him. So it's not a matter of material wealth that makes us anything, but it's our spiritual condition. And there are a lot of princes in Africa, we found, as we visited there. We pray regularly for the persecuted church, but I, I sometimes think that the African church, especially that part of Africa, might be the forgotten church. And uh, we don't pray for them maybe as regularly as we should because they, much happens there and we never hear about it in our, in our news coverage or our media or very little of it anyway. And we'll talk a bit about, more about that. I invite you to sing uh, with us now, uh, Jesus, Hope of the nations. So we were invited on a prayer walk. And what do you say is a prayer walk? That's what I said. What is a prayer walk? And I, uh, we had to get an information from this couple that we went with. They invited us. They're Philip and Nancy Wood. They were long-term missionary physicians in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sorry, went too far. And uh, they... Um, spent their career working in that country. Philip's a surgeon and Nancy's a family physician, worked a lot with the kids as well as uh, dietary uh, things. And they were working with the WEC mission, which is formerly known as Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. It was started by uh, C.T. Studd, if any of you know of your history, an English missionary back in 1913, traveled to this part of Africa and founded the Hope of Africa mission, which became this mission which is still ongoing, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So they told us that a prayer walk, we would be praying, and that's what we did a lot. Whenever we met uh, people, with uh, we were introduced ourselves. Well, no, we, we, they often know knew everybody there. It seems like they they were friends with all these people. But we would uh, meet with them, and and uh, well, we'd walk together. We'd pray with schools and the hospitals and churches, mission homes. It was an encouragement for the people and an intercession to God for his grace and help in their lives. And I think it was to show us something, too, to show us God's activity and to learn of uh, his work in this part of the world and the needs represented. So there we are doing a prayer walk. And we would pray for patients in hospitals because we visited quite a few of those. We'd pray uh, for traveling as as we set out on trips and uh, for the church leaders. And we would gather in people's homes. Uh, often we'd be invited for a meal and, and share a time of fellowship and prayer together with the uh, various uh, homes. And that was many homes, actually, different friends and former colleagues of Philip and Nancy. So that's what a prayer walk is. And what about the country of the DRC? It's hard to, to picture it. It's a, it's a big country. Uh, and where are you going? And I said, put your finger on the center of Africa and you're close. And so that red country is DRC. That's the 11th biggest country in area in the world, which is kind of interesting. There's 78 to 9 to 80 million people there, uh, living there. Um, it's a very young country. 45% of the population is less than 15. Can you imagine that? Uh, our, Church would be bursting with kids, and that's what exactly what we see. And 97% are less than 65. So we represent a, here in this church a big part of the <laughs> the older population of the 
of the DRC, because there aren't very many, uh, really. Uh, there you see some el- really elderly people, but there aren't very many of them. This is the area of, of that country we visited, and obviously you didn't see the whole country. So the, the northeast part of the, the country of DRC. We uh, came from Uganda to Bunia, which is there. That's where we started our trip. We flew with the Missionary Aviation Fellowship from Kampala to Bunia, and then we drove to a little place down here called Niankundi. Then we flew, uh, well, we had a little stop at Watsa, which I'll show you some pictures of, because it's kind of interesting what's there. And then on to Asiro. This was the uh, area where C.T. Studd worked, and uh, that's where the center of that church that he founded is, in Asiro. And a little trip down to Abambi and a, another little town a little farther south on those dusty roads that we saw. Um, and then we took a little trip, flew to a place in here somewhere, and then back to the border of Uganda, crossed back, and went by bus back down to Kampala. But we'll just stay in the DRC. So just this tiny little area of DRC, tiny. It took a couple of hours to fly from Bunia to Asiro, and then a couple of hours to fly from Asiro to Arua. So it's not uh, it's not that tiny. It's a varied uh, topography. There's a uh, grasslands, savanna grasslands that uh, you can see. Pretty neat. We climbed, or we actually took a ride up to the top of this hill this time. And uh, the grass grows pretty tall there. And uh, then there's other parts that are rainforest, and the trees grow pretty tall there. So we were in both parts of the country for that trip. Now, when I said we stopped at that little place called Water, just north of that, It was a kind of a familiar structure that we saw as we were flying over. It kind of looked like we were back in South Porcupine, right? So there's our pit. Well, I think it's a bit bigger than our pit, actually. But uh, they're mining the same stuff there at the gold mine. And and, uh, you can see there's the big equipment way down below us and uh, way down in the bottom of the pit. And they're opening another pit nearby. And it even comes with a familiar haul road. We're quite used to that now. So the mines are active. It's a country that's got a fairly wealth, a lot of wealth and mineral resources, a lot of unexplored mineral resources, I I would think, too. Um, Unfortunately, those resources haven't really got to the people that could use them because it's a poor country. And uh, it's if you look at the uh, uh, International Monetary Fund or the uh, other agencies that list poverty in countries and listing, you'll find DRC either at the bottom, second from bottom, or third or fourth, fifth from the bottom. It's right down there as a whole country. And the part of northeastern Congo where we were in is probably the poorer part of the country. So I think these people are, are among the poorest in the world. And, uh, and you can really see it. So pretty common sight to see the kids. Uh, young country, lots of these critters around. Laundry is done this way, that's how you do it, how you do your drying in the DRC. This is the hospital compound, people are just put their stuff to dry. This is very common when you drive down the dusty roads, you see a few dwellings on the side of the road, a bunch of kids out on the area, and they all charge after the vehicle to see if they can catch up to you when they, when they come. Some of them, many of them run without anything on, by the way, they're kind of uh, streakers out there. But. And then you, their homes are very modest, uh, obviously, uh, not the kind of homes that we have, but very crowded. You can imagine all those youngsters and people crowding in. And not unusual to have more than one family in a dwelling. Uh, it's really uh, quite impressive uh, what they have, what they don't have. Washroom facilities are, this is typical, probably an upgrade almost uh, to what some of them have. And uh, certainly not, uh, not what we're used to at all. And water supply, uh, Dry season, there weren't, the springs were running low, but here you are, you're spending a couple of, uh, quite a bit of time to fill those big canisters of water. There's a little pipe that you don't see that's filling that pipe, uh, but uh, still, that's your water for the, for the day. And there's obviously some aid, foreign aid coming in because you can see the Canadian aid there that's come to the country. So most of the people have a garden or some plot of land or some access to food, and that's what they grow. Uh, the cassava plant uh, is their staple form of uh, carbohydrate. You also use the leaves as a, a sort of a vegetable. 
not a tremendous diet, but it does fill their stomachs. Uh, difficult to prepare, and in a sense, you have to dig it out, peel it, dry it, crush it, soak it, and dry it some more, and then you can cook with it. Otherwise, it's a little bit toxic if you just eat it raw. So it's not like our potatoes. And then you take the leaves and you squash them up and cook them, and uh, that's your vegetable dish as well. There are a few other crops that they use. Uh, rice is one, peanuts another. They get some, maybe a lot of their protein from the beans and that part of it. So, meat is a bit of a delicacy, but chicken is everywhere for those of us who visit because they serve us that. On the sad side of this country, it's, it's a country that's known a lot of conflict. It uh, was a Belgian colony up until the 1960s and then gained independence. Since then, it's been a up and down hill with various conflicts washing over the country. And uh, interesting to note, this, this so-called Second Congo War, how many of you heard of it? None of us, right? So 1998 to 2003, it was, a, it was a broad conflict with many countries sending troops and armies and, and guerrilla factions and various things. You can see the, the arrows converging onto the country. Uh, so it was called the African World War in some places um, because there were seven or eight more countries involved. In that time, they estimated that five million people, five plus million people lost their lives as a result of the conflict because fighting, disease, dislocation, just uh, terrible conditions. That makes this the second deadly, the deadliest conflict since World War II. And uh, it's hard to imagine that, that these sort of Leave the country. That's why the country really has nothing. I don't, anything that gets started gets washed away by the conflicts that they face. So it's a really difficult country to, to start to work in and to build anything up because it just gets torn down again. So the dust and, and ash is quite appropriate from that point of view. I'd put this picture up. It's a kind of an idyllic scene, but you can tell we were a little younger for this trip. Uh, this is a couple that visited there in 1981. I don't know what... We, I did my elective in the same part of the world in, in 35 years earlier. And, and the, this mission compound, the kids were really uh, excited about having a swimming pool. So they got their parents to build them one. And there were a lot of missionaries there. And we got to use it there when we were there. And that was in 1981. This is today. And, and I just, uh, it, I mean a swimming pool of all things. It, that's not what you need in Africa. But this is just, it just shows you the what conflict does. It just uh, destroys. So there were a lot of homes in this area that are totally destroyed as well. Um, not been rebuilt uh, buildings and other church buildings and homes and the hospital itself. And there's mission buildings like the printing press for the Emmaus uh, well printing press for literature work, and, uh, and the Emmaus storeroom. This was an interesting thing. What, this storeroom, the roof was stripped off, and there was a lot of literature. This was the Emmaus courses in, in Kundi. The books just fell to the floor, and the rains came on them. It soaked them. It was a mess. But when they cleaned it up, you can still read the imprints of these books on the, on the concrete floor. Kind of an interesting way that uh, God's Word is not easily erased. Right? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, as a result of, of these conflicts, there were very few foreign workers. In the 2002, this town where this is uh, located, there were 1,500 to 2,000 people killed in one day as tribal warfare broke out in the, in the village and they, the, uh, the soldiers, rebels, whatever you call them, came through the hospital killing indiscriminately members of the opposite tribe to them. And about 1,500, 2,000 people lost their lives in that one day. And that's why those, that's where that swimming pool was, that conflict. Uh, it just sort of wiped out that mission hospital. Foreign missionaries were allowed to leave by the rebels, so they were evacuated. Philip Wood was there that day when that happened. He sheltered some of the people in his home. And the people knocked on the door and wanted to come in. And he said, I'm not opening the door, but I'll pray. And he started a long prayer at the window. I think he thought it might be as, you know, talk to God. He might just be there. But uh, the, uh, he, after he finished his prayer, he opened his eyes and the people had gone. And those people in his house were saved, but many lost their lives that day. And then the next day they evacuated the, uh, the foreigners. And many have not come back. And, and in this village, 
there were usually two tribes living side by side. Now there's only one. The other tribe was eliminated from that. We're going to sing another song. At this time, uh, I ask Vicky to come over to the organ and sing this hymn, but it's a, to a different tune than what we've been used to singing it, I think, if, we, if you know it as a familiar song. I mentioned that a lot of the missionaries are gone. There's not very much of a foreign presence there, but there are some that have returned or are working in the land. And just to remind us that there are people that have been sent to these lands and are gone there, even even despite the dangers, there's, there are people there. So uh, the first couple you know, uh, they visited us, Nathan and Sarah Montgomery, and Nathan is a, an airplane mechanic working with MAF. And they live in Kampala, Uganda, but Nathan services the aircraft that fly in DRC. So they really are important work in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we were fortunate to have them visit us here. And there they are uh, in their home. And, and their family is in, in well settled, I think, in Uganda and doing well. So MAF provides a tremendous support because this is the good road in dry season. <laughs> And you can see it's not that easy to travel in that land. So to get around MEF is really a, a vital support to the mission work there. And this is a road uh, in dry season. Now fill those trenches with water and mud and then drive your vehicle through there. and You'll never make it. So that's what they have to deal with when it starts to rain. And there's another MAF pilot, another Canadian. His name is Joel Hansen. He's from Brantford. And he was our pilot from Bunia to Asiro and from Asiro to Arua, so we got to fly with him a couple times. So another Canadian serving in that land. He's based in, Bun- in Niankundi, and that's where he lives so, with his family. There he is doing his job. We're grateful that he did a good job. Interesting, uh, the job for MAF pilots is a little bit, I, I got op- eyes open, I thought they were you know, just pilots, but they have to pack the luggage and move stuff around. And one of the trips we were on, with him, he was moving some uh, palm, oil, palm oil, right, in a, in a big jug that the uh, passenger that was with was shipping to another country. And this was an old, like those yellow water buckets we saw, and they had it filled with this palm oil. And as he was pulling it out, the thing just cracked, the plastic gets so hard. I don't know if you know anything about palm, no, it was not palm oil, it was, uh, was it palm? Yeah. And it was this vile orange color, and it splashed all over him, and so he had to take off his nice uniform and put on another shirt. He <laughs> didn't look like a pilot anymore, Jim. He was out of uniform, but he said, I'm still the pilot. <laughs> Who's the co-pilot? Dude? The uh, co-pilot was Philip Woods, uh, who knows nothing about flying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess it was the Lord in that sense. <laughs> so the plane's arrival at, a, at the uh, far-off stations is always still a big event. I was surprised. I thought they'd be used to that by now. When we were there 35 years ago, everybody gathered around the plane. 35 years later, everybody still gathers around the plane. So here we are. The plane's just arrived and we're going out to, to meet it. That's in that's a village called Nebobongo. Here's Frank and Marieka Bergman. Interesting couple uh, alone in Nebobongo as foreign workers. Uh, uh, Frank and Marieka are German, East German. Uh, and they have a strong Christian faith uh, out of East Germany. They remember unification very well. But they're, uh, Frank's working in construction, Marieka is helping with the hospital administration, they're serving the Lord in Nebobongo, so we spent time with them, they're a very gracious couple, very nice, and there's Frank, hard at work, constructing hospital buildings in that, uh, in that part of the world. And uh, Wycliffe Bible translators are working there, there's uh, the white lady there is Marianne Augustin from uh, the United States, and her team of translators, and she's a consultant there. They recently completed a New Testament in a tribal language, and we're just dedicating that. To, and there are a lot of tribal languages where there's no uh, scriptures, and they have people have the they can if they can read French, well they can have a French Bible. If they can read Swahili or Lingala, they can read a bit of that. But in their own language, which is their heart language, they don't have any of it. So they're still working, and these new translations are coming up. You can see quite a bit of work that Wycliffe is doing. So those are some of the supports that are. They are in place from, from us, but many of the other missionaries are gone. So a big part of what's happening in the DRC, I just would categorize a few things, and this education. Education is sort of so important for the development of a country, and they recognize that. 
it's a, a lot of the work that's going on is in education. And so we met a number of people involved in education. We stayed at this university for a few nights uh, in their guest house. Uh, the uh, Shalom University, a Christian university started by Christians uh, 50 plus years ago, has uh, managed to endure through the conflicts and it's certainly a growing work and uh, pr- producing graduates of uh, significant caliber. And they certainly have a uh, heart for education in this uh, place. They teach uh, theology, uh, development, administration, agriculture, science, medicine. It's quite a, quite a varied uh, curriculum that they have. Now, in, in that university, we met this group of students. These are students that are sponsored by the one particular church that Philip and Nancy and, and we were spent most of our time with. So these students received some support uh, to, to attend university. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be there at all. And you see that they're not all young people. They are getting elderly, but they, they're coming to the university because they see the need for education. The church has identified these people as, uh, as potential leaders and they're helping them through their education. They're taking various things, theology and uh, development and uh, other, other disciplines. They were working pastors, right? And now they've come to university to enhance their training. Some of them are in development in other fields, but some are taking theology. The, uh, I think it's the fellow in the middle there. Uh, he said he, he was quite afraid to go back to school, you can imagine. But he said, I just opened the computer and, and put my fear behind me. And So he had to learn how to use the computer. He had to learn how to speak Swahili, I think he's Lingala, that's hard for them because that's another language. They want them to learn English, like it's, it's incredible. They, they put them in fairly limited housing and, uh, and it's a tough, tough road for these students. Um, uh, one of them, I'm not sure if it's this fellow or one of the other guys, came from a, quite a remote village and brought his family. They all bring their families with them, they live in student housing. The uh, family all got on bicycles and they bicycled for five days so they could get to a place where they could catch public transit, which is probably the back of a truck. And they, then they drove for a couple more days to get to uh, Bunia. So just to get there was, is quite a trek for some of these folks. This couple here, uh, uh, how do you say his name? Naganina? Naganina? Naganina and Melanie. They were pastors who were, brought their family to, uh, to Bunia for education. They're almost finished. Um, they have tragedy too. As soon as shortly while while they were coming to to Bunya for education, their, one of their daughters fell ill. She continued to do poorly, and she actually passed uh, away while they were here, just after they had enrolled as students. So, the, you know, the suffering that they they go through. Um, Melanie was expecting another child at this point, and uh, Vicky was able to give her a blanket that she had uh, crocheted. So that was nice. But uh, we haven't heard what ha- how what they've had since then. So I don't know. Let's ask Nancy. So the, there's student housing in the background. Those buildings, they, they hold multiple families. <laughs> and here are the wives, some of the wives having a ladies' Bible study uh, during the day. So. Now, the nursing school in the same city, you can see its name, camp, or the campus, Campuswood, they was named after the couple we were with. They sort of helped found this nursing school. And nursing is a really popular discipline to study. They've had some support from outside of the country to build some very nice facilities for their nursing school. And uh, there's more work on going. And you can see they built a beautiful lecture room for the nursing students. Uh, and uh, there's a lot to say about nursing students and many people enroll in that. But getting their practical experience is difficult in the country. They try and send them out, but then they have to be careful where to send them because there's not so much stability in some places. Special needs education. This is a school for deaf children. It was a fascinating school, and Nancy Wood has been involved in that, and we've been keeping in touch about what's going on in this school. It was uh, founded by that man in the white jacket there, who was sent by a missionary that Vicky worked with in 1981, uh, and she sent him to Nigeria to learn how to teach deaf children. He came back and founded this school, and it's been teaching deaf children now. Now they have over a hundred students there. And it's amazing to think uh, that there are that many deaf children in, this, in the area. 
but Bunya now has about 700,000 people, but they seem to have a lot of problems with the deafness. Um, so they, this school, lots of, lots of shortages. They managed to get funding to build this building, but they still need more buildings, especially housing. And uh, they need a fence to protect them because in the scheme of things, thieves broke in a few months after, or a few weeks after we were there and stole their solar panels, which they used to charge their computers. And so they, I think they've managed to replace them with a gift now, but, and they're trying to bolt them down in some way that makes it really hard to steal. But uh, hopefully they'll get some funding to build a fence and a more secure compound. Um, I wondered if you wanted to hear what a teaching deaf students sounds like. This, this teacher actually is a hearing teacher. She can hear and she will talk. And they have a few students that hear, so she talks to them. But the other teacher you'll see in the same classroom, because you can have two classrooms teaching deaf children side by side, because they don't listen to each other, I guess. Uh, but uh, you'll hear some. Notice, too, the, the Bring Your Child to Work uh, program that's going on with this teacher. So. You can turn that volume up there today. I know it's deaf, but... See what I'm referring to? The little infant down in the floor is her, her child. The teacher has to bring the children to work. And the other class that's taking part at the same time? This gentleman himself is deaf, I believe. So. You can understand sign language too, right? Now, if you wondered what uh, it sounds like when deaf students play soccer, I just have to show you this too. So this is their compound where they have their school and phys ed class. <laughs> A little quieter game than what we usually have. Notice their soccer shoes, lack of. And I, I, I'd have trouble walking across that, let alone running across that. Thing. Moving on, different type of education. This is a, a local Bible school in uh, one of the villages. And this is the directress. Uh, she runs this Bible school for about 16 students. These are adults, uh, finished their other schooling, but going to take a couple of years of Bible school education. And uh, they take classes in the morning, usually work in their fields in the afternoon. And uh, it's a time where they can learn more of the scriptures and be prepared for service in the church. Here's their class. Uh, in session. Another Bible school, I actually got to address them. I uh, don't know how much they understood my English. No, I had a translator, but we talked to them a little bit. And this one is in Abambi, different village, just right where C.T. Studd started his work. So there's still students in Bible school. Notice the different colors, that's the different classes in the different years of their education. While the parents are having their education, the church is providing nursery school for their younger children and this is uh, schools, two of them uh, two classrooms, they usually build them, rebuild them every other year because the termites tear them down uh, and they have to rebuild but here they are in class so that's the children of the Bible students 
And here's a, an elementary school uh, in session uh, in, in the area. You can see that they are well-equipped modern school with uh, one blackboard that's built on wood. It's not much, but there they are uh, learning their lessons. Some practical schools are also in existence. Here's one that taught sewing classes, and there's, there's some of their equipment that they use for sewing and uh, also typing, keyboarding. A little bit uh, ancient, but there the, all the letters are represented, I'm sure. So that's uh, sort of education. The other major work that Christians get involved in and are medical, that's something I'm a little more familiar with. Uh, and we did manage to visit quite a few different uh, settings. There's a hospital in Bunia where they're uh, trying to care for the ill in a limited fashion by, the, by what they don't have. But they're working hard to do that. Here's a ward in that, I think that's in the Nienkundi Hospital. Government is supposed to help fund these things. The, the checks are usually in the mail, not always on time, sometimes never arrive. So the church is trying to provide care. Uh, some outside support has obviously helped uh, many places, but uh, it's a real trouble to, to organize the funding and to divide it and to know what priorities it should what should be received. I'm able to visit the, the operating room. Here's a, one of the nurse anesthetists and she's showing me what medicines that she would use. They have a limited supply. This operating room was built by the Samaritans first in Nienkundi, that area where the swimming pool was. And they rebuilt the hospital operating room uh, from uh, outside funding. And actually it's the nicest operating room I've found in Africa in the developing area. So they have a lovely facility there. And there are a few uh, expatriate uh, physicians working in that hospital now. Other hospitals, not so much equipment. There's the, the, uh, the stretcher <laughs> to get your patient around in that hospital. A little bit labor-intensive. There's another anesthesiologist performing the trade doing a wonderful job and has uh, learned a lot from visiting specialists who've come to help her and her colleagues learn. Uh, they have an interesting operating room layout in that, that uh, operating room. They have two side-by-side -side operating rooms and they were both working there when we were doing that surgery. The ultrasound unit has become an indispensable part of, of uh, diagnosis in uh, in that part of the world. We have CT scanners and MRIs they don't have, but this little gadget that uh, is, is very useful, helpful, and uh, a bit of technology that's portable and can easily be brought. This is the medical staff at Nebobongo Hospital, uh, except for the three white faces. They're not part of the staff. But uh, the fellow in the yellow shirt is uh, Jean-Claude, and he's the director. His wife stands beside him. These doctors are caring for 250,000 people in that area. And just after we left, the rain started and uh, an, an epidemic broke out where there was a malaria intestinal infection combination. And many of the children especially are susceptible to that deadly combination. And if they don't get urgent treatment, they, they often die. And so people were bringing their children in from long distances. And uh, after we left, they were having two to three pediatric deaths per day in this hospital. And these, these guys were run ragged as well as their nursing staff. Uh, they didn't know just how they were going to cope with uh, treating all these ill children. They had to you know, stop everything else, like and just uh, dedicate themselves to treating that epidemic. This is the courtyard waiting area for the hospital there. And uh, every morning we had uh, devotions at the hospital and these Patients and their families gather and listen to the devotions, hear God's word as, uh, as it's presented to them. And then the church uh, is the other main area, obviously, that we were involved in. Just what is happening in the church in the Congo. Uh, here's a, a, a large church in Bunya, and I'll just give you a little flavor for their worship service. Uh, uh, but um, this church... You can notice the the youthfulness of the of the congregation. Mm -hmm. 
not unlike us. They have their overheads there and everything. Yeah. At the church, was, that was the French service. They also have a Swahili service where they fill the church again uh, and uh, do it again. So quite a few worshippers there. We uh, spent a lot of time with this particular denomination. I can call it denomination. Seca says, CECCA 16 church. I don't know where they got the numbers from. That other church we were in was Seca Van, Seca 20. That was their denomination. But the, sometime in the history of the, of the country, they divided the area into sections, and each church sort of had their area. So the Protestant church of Ebambi was Seca says, Communité évangélique du Christ au cœur de l'Afrique, uh, Evangelical Community of Christ in the Heart of Africa. Celebrated their 100th anniversary in 2013, the year that C.T. Studs started the work there, and this church grew out of his work. They varies numbers. 134,000 was mentioned, 250,000 was mentioned as the number of, of people, members in their church. And they're responsible for much of the educational, the medical work, as well as the, obviously, the theological work of the, of the area. This was a smaller branch of their church in Bunya, where we were, and uh, this was their welcoming service. Actually, this is, sorry, this is C.T. Studd's grave. He started that church, and uh, that's where he's buried in the Bambi. Uh, this was the welcoming service for us. We thought it was a church service, but they were there just to welcome us. And uh, you can see they're building the church. Their constructions on the walls are up, but the roof is still temporary. So one of the uh, people, when they were at, when we had a bit of a discussion asking questions, one of these folks asked us, can you send more missionaries? We want, we'd like to have more missionaries back. And, you know, like we, Philip and Nancy, well, what do we say? But we, we don't know. We're not there. But in a sense, they missed the missionary work, the people that would help them along. But and in a lot of ways, this conflict has been a sort of blessing in disguise as the church leaders have been forced to rise from, the, from their own people. And, but they do miss uh, a lot of what missions bring, but uh, they're, being, they're learning to do it on their own. And I think that's an important task for them to continue. Here's a little church meeting of the Seca 16 executive uh, that Vicky was part of. Uh, they got a meeting. The two men there, the one in the blue shirt, Mogadaya, and the other fellow, his name down, which is gone now. They are the president and vice president of the church, and their spouses are there. Uh, interesting, Mogadaya remarried after his wife passed, and one of the missionary ladies there, she was the his wife, and they, they're in charge of running this massive denomination. So they have a lot of important choices and decisions to make, and a lot of uh, problems. Poverty is a pervasive problem for the church. Uh, I mean, they want to do so much, but they're limited by what they can do. They're limited by things like not having enough Bibles, even eyeglasses to read. The students don't have what they need. Um, so they find that they... In the beginning of the church, it was thought that, you know, being the church leaders, uh, the, the pastors and those people were the, that was the way to be spiritual. You would show your spirituality. So they pushed, pushed, they encouraged people, people to become those, those uh, church leaders. But they find out that those people have a lot of needs financially, but there's nobody then to, to uh, support them. So they are looking for people now to work in, work in the community and be the leaders in their church. Kind of, Sounds like a familiar model, right? So, uh, you know, they need to develop a greater degree of uh, bivocational workers uh, in the church. And so that's one of their, their important uh, goals. They lack some s- spiritual development and there's not much literature. So these are some recent literatures that have been developed for them to use. A, a book that explains a, a bit more of the, uh, uh, of the, the Bible and, uh, in a teachable way. And another one that was just that Vicky got to see was a, a book called Healing the Wounds of Trauma. You can imagine how important that sort of topic is in that, uh, in that land. This is their vision statements that were posted up, and they're very tuned to the fact that they need to reach out to the country around and, and win people for Christ. And their, their program of educating their pastors and their workers is just part of that program, so they put a lot of effort into doing that. They have building projects on the go. Here's one of the new buildings they're trying to, to build for their worship. Building is a big thing. If you put up a building, that's, that's key. You've got a little bit of money, use it to put up a building. I'm not sure about that in some ways, but there they are working. I don't know about those trusses still. I'm not sure. 
about that. But they did have a retired engineer helping them to do that. African engineers. So. And they, they do things like caring for widows. Here's some uh, the widows that they're, they're looking after. But a pri- you only have so much funds, how much, and you have a lot of widows. Who gets it and who gets the, res- the priorities? That's a difficult challenge for them. That's widow housing in that, uh, in that community. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I got the wrong thing. Widows of previous pastors. <laughs> right. Another interesting cultural problem that, uh, that they face is, is the marriage, the bride price. The, the, the women uh, have a, a price tag attached to them, many, and the, the price is too high for many of these Christian workers to, to afford a bride. So how do you do that? And the church is trying to discourage putting high bride prices on people because it just discourages Christian marriages. There's the church at Abambi, uh, not far from where C.T. Studd's buried, and that's the, the church just coming out of worship on, on a Sunday there. And I think we may have seen this, but here they are. Here they are in that church. Again, you notice the, the youth and the children present there. Very eager to shake your hand. So just to finish off, uh, just to think about some of the African leaders that God has called to do. We met many. I can't include very many, but just to, just to highlight that there are lots of people that are being called by God to express their devotion to him through leading the church. This is one of the nurses in the hospital, Aaron. He's a head nurse at the Bunya Hospital. Many challenges facing them as they try and match the quality and the uh, 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 make sure there's quality care provided by the nursing staff and to even just pay the staff. And then uh, just a lot of issues in the. So for Aaron, you can pray for him. This is Bego Guma and Cecile. Um, long-term nurses as well, or he was, and raised ten children uh, uh, through their their lives. There, um, they uh, one of their sons is a physician. We were able to give him a French English Bible. He's starting to learn English, so that was appreciated. And uh, their family is an important contribution to the church. Here's a guy named Melchizedek. Mealy, they call him. Uh, he's the director of a uh, large nursing school in Bunya, that one that with a new big building that they're building and with a big lecture theater. He has a lot of responsibilities in running that school and uh, is doing a fine job. Uh, they need buildings, they need students and placements for their students, they need better lab- library and a better computer labs, so lots of needs, but work is ongoing there. He's a, I think he has a PhD in education, Dr. Mealy. And his wife, although not the woman there, but she runs a, um, a health cooperative. Uh, her name is Rose. So Maley's wife runs this sort of uh, insurance plan for health care, which has become quite widespread and successful in that area. And people contribute a bit of money and then they can get their health care, basic health care needs met. So it's kind of like running OHIP. That's what she's doing uh, and there's that Mama Christine again running a, a Bible school. Many, many directors and directresses of these Bible schools uh, teaching and training African students in the Bible. The church leaders which we mentioned, uh, John David Mobadai and uh, Nazimba and their wives as they lead that uh, large church. And Jean-Claude Batini, the medical director of Nebo Hospital, uh, wide degree of responsibility of caring for the medical needs of a huge number of people. And there's Mr. Deere, the, the uh, 
administrator of the deaf school. What a guy who's devoted his life to, to people that really are for, the forgotten of the forgotten. Really, deaf people are, are valued less in that society in many ways. He's dedicated his life to uh, meeting their needs in education. Quite a, quite a sacrifice for his part. So, this was the, the last slide I have. And this was one of the houses we stayed at uh, while we were in, uh, in uh, Gambi. And I thought it had a unique attic ventilation system there that you can see. But this little uh, beam of light uh, sort of came at just the right time. You just had to be there at just the right time to catch it. Uh, and to me, it, it spoke again about the, the light piercing the darkness, uh, that, that dust and ashes thought. But there is hope in that uh, midst of dust and ash, and that the darkness can't resist the light. And so that, that beam of light just reminded me that there's a God at work in this country and that even the ravages of war he's using for his purposes to build his church. He's raising the poor from the dust and he's lifting the needy from the ash heap in, in these ways. But they still have so many tremendous needs. But he seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. So he's making, God's in the business of making princes in this land and we saw much of that. I wonder if we could just sing Hope of the Nations one more time as we conclude our talk. Father in heaven, we thank you for the princes that you are raising up around the world. We thank you for the light of the world, the light of Jesus, and thank you for his ability to break through the darkness and to meet the needs wherever they are. In his name we pray. Amen.